Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, October 13th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, How I Solved My Great Big Prostate Problem, from AARP Bulletin. And The Secret to Living to 100? It's Not Good Habits, from the Wall Street Journal. Plus, Can Vaccinations Save Your Brain, from AARP Bulletin. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. How I Solved My Great Big Prostate Problem. Most men will endure an enlarged prostate at some point in life. One man shares his journey to find relief. By John Manuel Andriotti. This is written in the first person. I was 61 years old and I was being held hostage by my prostate. I couldn't travel anywhere unless I knew where the nearest restroom was. Must-go-now emergencies came out of nowhere, and my nights were a series of strolls between bedroom and bathroom. I talked with a urologist who said that at my age, I was probably dealing with an enlarged prostate, in medical terms, benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. The prostate is the walnut-sized gland in men that produces semen. As we age, it often increases in size, and because it surrounds the urethra, the tube that carries urine out of the body, it can obstruct its flow. BPH can leave a man feeling as though his bladder is always full, even after he's just gone, and make it difficult for him to get the flow of urine started. My urologist offered me a prescription drug to address my symptoms— but I wasn't eager to add another medication to my growing daily regimen, so I opted first to experiment with herbal supplements long used in traditional cultures for men's urinary health, plant extracts such as saw palmetto and milk thistle. I experienced fewer symptoms after a couple of weeks, but the problem slowly worsened until it was clear I needed a different solution. We don't have good data to support supplements, says Naren Nimagata, M.D., assistant professor of urology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. He adds, though, if people are on them and they tell me they have benefit, I don't tell them to stop them. There's a lot that science doesn't understand about BPH, including what causes it, why it's more common in the West than in Asian countries, such as China and Japan, and why it may be more common among black men. Genetics, lifestyle, and environmental factors may play a role, says Thomas Chi, M.D., a urology professor at the University of California, San Francisco. What is known is that a man's decade of life corresponds almost exactly with the likelihood that he'll suffer an enlarged prostate. 50% of 50-year-olds, 60% of 60-year-olds, 70% of 70-year-olds, and so on, will have prostatic enlargement, says Mayo Clinic urologist Tobias S. Kaler, M.D. But Kaler notes that only about half of those men will experience symptoms because it's not just the prostate's size that causes obstruction, but also its architecture, that is, how it's configured around the urethra. I sought out another urologist who ran tests to confirm BPH and determine how much my prostate was interfering with my urinary function. First was a questionnaire. 
Next was a flow test in which I peed into a funnel to measure my stream's strength. After that, they put me through an ultrasound scanner to see how much urine was still left in my bladder. Finally came the cystoscopy. My doctor explained that he'd insert specialized implements through my penis into my urethra to reach my prostate and bladder. It can be done under light sedation, but no thanks. I chose full sedation as I was frankly freaked out by the thought of anything going in there. The cystoscopy is essential to ruling out prostate cancer. BPH commonly causes blood to show up in the urine or the level of PSA, prostate-specific antigen, in your body to increase. Turns out both are symptoms of prostate cancer as well. And BPH can complicate prostate cancer treatment, says Adam S. Feldman, M.D., director of urologic research at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. A prostate MRI is often used to accurately size the prostate. Important information in deciding your best course of action. Once BPH was confirmed, my medical treatment began with the erectile dysfunction Tadalafil, or Cialis, which is also FDA approved to treat enlarged prostates by relaxing prostate and bladder muscles, reducing pressure on the urethra. Next up was Temsulacin or Flomax, which also relaxes prostate muscles and loosens the glands' grip on the urethra. A downside of this and similar alpha blocker drugs is that their side effects can include retrograde ejaculation. She says it's not typically harmful and doesn't require treatment, but so-called dry orgasm can be unsettling and put the kibosh on a man's fertility. When these medications failed to control my symptoms, it was time to explore other options, meaning surgery. While procedures can be a big jump for some men, the efficacy is much greater than medications, says R. Charles Welliver, Jr., M.D., associate professor of urology and director of men's health at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York. There are essentially two surgery options: TERP which is transurethral resection of the prostate, in which prostate tissue is cut away by a device that's inserted into the urethra. The pros: it's effective at relieving symptoms quickly, and most men experience a much stronger urine flow within days. But its impact on sex can be significant. It can result in retrograde ejaculation, and erectile dysfunction is a rare but potential result. Missed. Minimally invasive surgical therapy, which encompasses a number of different outpatient procedures, including surgeries, laser, and even steam treatments. Though mists are much less likely to cause sexual dysfunction, they're not considered permanent fixes because prostates continue to grow after a procedure. We're definitely preserving ejaculatory function, says urologist Amy E. Crambeck, M.D., at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. But the re-treatment rates are exceptionally high, she says. Deciding on a procedure essentially comes down to one question. Cramback says, "Do I want to risk having another surgery and preserve my ejaculation, or do I want to get rid of my ejaculation and not have to worry about another surgery?" She says. Because preserving sexual function was a priority for me, I chose a mist procedure that involves pinning back the lobes of the prostate to open the urethra. It doesn't tend to open the urethra as fully as TERP, but it has an excellent record for preserving erection and ejaculation. 
One year since my procedure, I am happy to report that my urinary symptoms have greatly improved and my sexual functions remain intact. If I am not quite peeing like a fire hose, I'm also not having emergencies. All six urologists I interviewed say it's normal for men and women over 60 to awaken at least once or twice a night to urinate. But some nights, I don't have to get up at all. Will I need another procedure one day? Maybe. For now, I'm just happy not to be a hostage to my prostate anymore. Up next, the secret to living to 100? It's not good habits. Good genes matter more the older you get. By Alex Janin from the Wall Street Journal. If you want to live to your 100th birthday, healthy habits can only get you so far. Research is making clear the role that genes play in living to very old age. Habits like getting enough sleep, exercising, and eating a healthy diet can help you stave off disease and live longer. Yet when it comes to living beyond 90, genetics start to play a trump card, say researchers who study aging. Some people have this idea. If I do everything right, diet and exercise, I can live to be 150. And that's not really correct, says Robert Young, who directs a team of researchers at the nonprofit scientific organization Gerontology Research Group. About 25% of your ability to live to 90 is determined by genetics, says Dr. Thomas Pearls, a professor of medicine at Boston University who leads the New England Centenarian Study, which has followed centenarians and their family members since 1995. By age 100, it's roughly 50% genetic, he estimates, and by around 106, it's 75%. Knowing what enables some people to live very long lives has consequences for the rest of us. Ongoing research into very old age may help provide insight that could eventually be used to develop drugs or identify lifestyle changes to help people live healthier for longer, says Dr. James Kirkland, president of the American Federation for Aging Research. Who makes it to 100? Centenarians make up a growing share of the U.S. population. There are about 109,000 centenarians living in the country in 2023, according to Census Bureau projections, up from about 65,000 10 years ago, thanks in part to decades of advances in medicine and public health. Despite a decline in life expectancy, which dropped to 76.4 in 2021, Pearls estimates that roughly 20% of the population has the genetic makeup that could get them to 100 if they also make consistent, healthy choices. Not only do centenarians live longer, but data suggests they manage to avoid or delay age-related diseases like cancer, dementia, and cardiovascular disease longer than the general population. Among the New England Centenarian Study participants, 15% are escapers, or people with no demonstrable disease at the age of 100. Some 43% are delayers, those who didn't develop age-related disease until age 80 or after. Chuck Ullman, who is 97 and lives in a retirement community in Thousand Oaks, California, says he is free of health problems, aside from a sore right shoulder from a recent electric biking accident, and has no desire to live to a particular age. 
He hopes to live as long as he feels good, and he can do the things he loves, such as woodworking, attending political discussion groups, and getting dinner with some of his many friends. There are 350 residents here, and I have 350 friends. Alman says of his community. He also spends time with Betty, his wife of 77 years. My objective is to enjoy each and every day that comes along. He says. Genes that matter. Researchers have identified some genes and combinations of them that are associated with longevity, such as the presence of a variant of what's known as the apolipoprotein E gene called E2, a trait thought to help protect against Alzheimer's. They emphasize each trait is a small piece in a large, complicated puzzle, which can factor in socioeconomic status, race and ethnicity, and climate. Living past 100 requires a combination of many genetic variants, each with a relatively modest effect, says Pearls of the New England Centenarian Study. Gene variants that offer protective qualities, such as repairing DNA damage, are especially beneficial, he says. People who are curious about how long they might live should start by looking at their family histories. Your relatives' lifespans are one of the strongest predictors of longevity, says Pearls. Alman, the 97-year-old, says his mother lived to 90. If multiple members of your family have lived into very advanced age, you've probably won a much greater chance of having purchased the right lottery ticket, says Pearls. Good habits. Neurologist Dr. Claudia Cowes has been tracking the habits of the oldest old, those older than 90, in Southern California since 2003, as part of a study at the University of California, Irvine. She and a team of researchers have found links between longevity and even short amounts of exercise, social activities such as going to church, and modest caffeine and alcohol intake. Superagers, or people over the age of 80 whose cognitive abilities are on par with those 20 to 30 years younger, reported having more warm, trusting, high-quality relationships with other people than cognitively normal participants. Investigators at Northwestern University found. Keeping in good relationships could be one key to health span, says Amanda Cook Mayer, a neuropsychologist at the University of Michigan and lead author of the study. Your outlook also matters. Harvard researchers identified a link between optimism and longer lifespans in women across racial and ethnic groups. Among the study participants, the 25% who were the most optimistic had a greater likelihood of living beyond 90 years than the least optimistic 25%, according to the 2022 study published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. Jean Case, who's 100, says she has taken a glass half full approach to life. She plans to outlive her colon and skin cancers and keep enjoying swing music and Mexican food as long as she feels physically and mentally well. A day in her life can include walking a mile, conversing with her writing group, or noshing on fish tacos with friends. The Irvine, California resident has always exercised, but also enjoys indulgences like cheesecake and lemon bars. I try not to let stress bother me, she says. Up next, can vaccinations save your brain? There's growing evidence that getting your shots can lower dementia risk. By Marlene Simmons from AARP Bulletin. 
As autumn comes around, so do the placards and public service announcements alerting us to get our flu shots, update our COVID-19 vaccines, and generally get on top of the inoculations we need as we get older. But after three years of culture wars, dogmatic dogfights, and scientific stops and starts, the idea of getting that next shot seems unusually fraught, especially when anti-vaccine celebrities are in the thick of today's political debates. New research has provided yet one more reason why staying on top of your vaccinations makes sense. They might decrease the risk of age-related cognitive decline. Vaccination is the right thing to do to protect yourself from flu and other infections, says Paul E. Schultz, M.D., professor of neurology and director of the Neurocognitive Disorder Center at the McGovern Medical School at UT Health Houston. Now there is also the potential fringe benefit of vaccination, which is reducing the risk of Alzheimer's, he says. In recent years, studies have found that those who get vaccinated for the flu and other infectious diseases appear less likely than their unvaccinated counterparts to get dementia, although it's unclear what happens in the brain to cause this. One theory some experts have is that the infection plays a role in developing Alzheimer's disease and that vaccinations may help stave off these infections. Others, like Schultz, says it's possible that vaccination may reduce an immune system function that attacks amyloid plaque, a protein found in abnormally high levels in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, as an invader, causing chronic brain inflammation and the death of nearby cells. The problem in Alzheimer's is that the immune system keeps trying to get rid of the plaque, and it can't, Schulz explains. The plaque sits there for 10 years, and the immune system keeps throwing poisons at it all that time and is killing brain cells in the process, he says. It's also possible that vaccines may enhance the ability of the immune system to remove amyloid plaques. Schulz was the senior author of a recent study that found a statistically significant difference in the incidence of Alzheimer's after following two groups, one vaccinated against the flu, the other unvaccinated, for up to eight years. The groups, of more than 935,000 each, were obtained from a national patient database. To ensure a valid comparison, both groups shared many of the same characteristics and risk factors, including age, gender, and conditions such as hypertension, Schulz says, except one group was vaccinated and the other was not. He and his colleagues found that patients who received at least one flu vaccine during the follow-up period of four years were 40 percent less likely to develop Alzheimer's compared with those who did not get the vaccine. Additional analysis found that those who received an annual flu shot had the lowest rate of the disease. The more vaccinations you got, the better, Schultz says. His team has been studying the effects of vaccines for other infectious diseases, including shingles, pneumococcal pneumonia, and the combination of tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, or whooping cough, known as Tdap, with similar findings, he says. Another recent study, still to be peer-reviewed, concluded that vaccination with Zostavax, the early shingles vaccine, among a quite senior population in Wales, averted an estimated one in five new dementia diagnoses during a seven-year period, according to Pascal Geldsetzer, MD, assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University, who conducted the research. 
The exact size of the preventive effect of shingles vaccination for dementia is hard to pinpoint in such an analysis, but our study suggests that the effect is substantial, Geldsetzer says. We believe that our analysis provides compelling evidence that shingles vaccination prevents or delays dementia in this older age group, he says. Virologist Robert T. Schooley, M.D., an infectious disease specialist at the University of California, San Diego, who has not been involved in any of the studies, says it is certainly plausible that reducing the frequency and severity of influenza through vaccination can quell immune activation over time. Other conditions associated with chronic or recurrent uncontrolled systemic inflammation, such as chronic HIV infection, can also be associated with accelerated cognitive decline, and this mechanism might well account for the findings, he says. Though experts say the growing evidence is promising, some suggest caution when interpreting the results. No matter how hard you try to control that the two groups are comparable, there is the residual sense that folks who choose to get vaccinated are different in unmeasurable ways from those who do not get vaccinated, says William Schaffner, M.D., professor of preventive medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. These unmeasured differences could have an impact on the incidence of dementia and distort the possible influence of the vaccines, he says. Regardless, Schaffner adds, this is not an issue that ought to figure notably in one's decision whether to receive vaccines. The data are clear that vaccines help prevent influenza, COVID, pneumococcal disease, shingles, and so forth. As I am wont to observe, disease bad, vaccines good, he says. Schooley agrees, saying one thing is for certain, whether or not this observation is real, staying up to date with vaccinations for influenza and other infectious diseases as we age is a good idea, he says. Up next, what's healthy to sip if you have diabetes? Adults with type 2 diabetes who drank more than five cups of water daily were 23% less likely to die over an average follow-up of 18.5 years than those who had less than one cup, says new research. The study also found that replacing one sugar-sweetened drink a day with water, coffee, tea, or low-fat milk was associated with a 12 to 18% lower risk of early death. And the source is the BMJ. Also, should you be checked for sleep apnea? It's been clear for years that people who are overweight and snore loudly should be assessed for obstructive sleep apnea, where breathing can pause many times during sleep. But newer research suggests those with less recognized links to OSA, depression, smoking, heart disease, and inactive lifestyle, should be evaluated too. It found that around 20% of study subjects were at high risk for OSA, but only 3.5% were being treated for it. And the source is ERJ OpenRES. Also from Consumer Reports on Health, on your mind, question of the month. Is pasta that's made with ingredients like chickpeas and lentils better for me? Answer. It may provide more protein and fiber than traditional pasta, which is usually made with refined wheat flour. Pasta made with chickpeas, lentils, or other legumes has about 12 to 13 grams of protein per serving, compared with about 7 grams for wheat pasta. 
and two ounces of dry vegetable pasta, those labeled, say, spinach or tomato, contain about a quarter cup of dried powdered veggies, says Isabel Maples, RDN, a national spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. That's a half serving of produce. Of course, adding protein and vegetables to regular pasta is also an option. And one final question from the column On Your Mind, Consumer Reports on Health. Will stability sneakers help me stay more balanced? The answer, stability sneakers have more built-in arch support and can make you feel more balanced and secure. And they can help prevent flat feet from rolling inward while walking, says Laura Virtue Delayo, a podiatrist in Scranton, Pennsylvania. That overpronation can lead to hip, knee, and back pain and is linked to a risk of falls among older adults. Bring up balance concerns and your interest in stability sneakers with your doctor. Virtue Delayo advises buying them in person at a runner's store. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.